oh, hey, this is the person who gets really excited about new consoles, yet will dig up a PS2 and only play old games. Your favorite host, Kami Deadleaves, ready for episode 5 of Spooky Rama. <laughs> Today's episode, we're going to cover 1985 Phenomena by Dario Argento. So what is Phenomena about? Usually I would play the trailer or part of it just to let you know what it's all about. But to be honest, I thought the trailer was pretty bad. And also it's one of those trailers when they don't explain what's happening. It just shows you stuff. So it doesn't translate well to play it in the podcast, so I'm just going to tell you what it's on about. The story takes place in the Swiss Alps, and there are murders happening. A lot of young girls are disappearing. And in parallel of that, you have Jennifer Corvino, a young American girl, who arrive at an all-girls school, and we discover that she has the ability to communicate with insects and her and a doctor an entomologist are going to try to solve the murders with the help of insects that's the basic plot of phenomena the film is directed and produced by dario argento the screenplay and the story is by dario argento and franco ferrini and the main two characters are played by jennifer connelly and donald pleasance the editing is by Franco Fraticilli, who also worked on a lot of other films with Dario Argento, like The Bird with uh, the Crystal Plumage, The Cats of Ninetail, Deep Red, Suspiria, Inferno, Tenebrae, Opera, basically a lot of them. I think they are a team. Cinematography is Romano Albani, who works also on Inferno. I'm just telling you all of that because it's important to see the similarities between all those films and the way those people work together. So I think it's quite important. It was released in Italy on the 31st of January 1985. And the running time is 116 minutes. But we're going to see in a second that it's not always been the case. There are actually three different releases of Phenomena. So the first release is the one I just talked about. It's the Italian release, as Dario Argento is an Italian director. So it was released at 116-minute running time. There was also another release for Europe where they cut a little bit of the film and the running time was 110 minutes. To be honest, it doesn't really matter because the only bits they cut are not that important it's like start of you know a few frames at the start of the scene or at the end of the scene it's it's not major but it's still interesting to know but now what is interesting to know is that the, when the film was released 
theatrically in the United States, it was not only retitled, it was retitled Creepers, so you might have heard of the film as Creepers before, but it was also cut to only 83 minutes. That's tiny. So there's entire scenes that were entirely cut and other scenes have been reordered, so they refilmed it. It was basically not the same film at all. So it was, it's just really weird. Like, I don't understand why they did that. It's just really odd. So a lot of people have watched this film called Creepers, knowing they know it and everything, probably thought it wasn't great because it cut out a lot of things and it's just not the same film and it does nothing for the atmosphere of the film or anything like that and just thought like yeah this is a bit of a shit film yeah not interesting when actually they haven't even seen phenomena at all what they also did is put music in between scenes where in phenomena there's none so again completely changing the atmosphere of the film and they also ditched one of the song by motorhead yeah, we're going to talk about the soundtrack. The soundtrack is something to talk about. So No Locomotive by Motorhead in Creepers. Um, apparently, Creepers was the last of Dario Argento's film to receive any kind of meaningful theatrical release in the United States. It's one of those films that were more popular once they were released on VHS and everything, rather than when they came out in the cinema. So they released in United States Creepers, that really short version, on VHS and Betamax in 1986. And by March 29th, Creepers was literally in the top video cassettes rental charts. By April 5, the release was at number 29 in the charts, which is pretty good but you had to wait for the dvd release to have actually phenomena and not creepers so at first when they released it they used the 110 minutes version of the film the europe one the european one then you had to wait until 2016 in the united states when they released the film on blu-ray to have creepers the 116 minutes of Phenomena and the 110 version of the film as well. So 2016, you had the three version released in the same Blu-ray. It was also released in the United Kingdom in 2017. I didn't realize it was that late until it was released on... Uh, I don't know, I guess it's Blu-ray. I don't know if it's Blu-ray or DVD was released in the United Kingdom because I've had the DVDs for years, but it's my French DVD. It's in its original version. It's in English. We'll talk about that as well because the film was actually shot in English. So it's the original version with French subtitles, but I've had the DVDs for years and years. And apparently, for example, in the United Kingdom... You didn't have it until 2017. And again, it includes the integral version, the international cut and creepers. And it was on Blu-ray. I just had confirmation. I just double-checked. It was on Blu-ray. So yeah, quite a trip really. So it's no surprise that like when I said I was going to do Phenomena, I started 
talking really excitedly about it around me. I live in the UK at the moment. And I was really surprised that literally nobody watched it or even heard of it. And I was like, really? Well, so I was kind of like, you know, not the most known Dario Argento film, but at least that people would have, you know, heard about it or anything. Especially because when I was living in France, my friend in France heard about Phenomena. And then I realized I don't know what the hell that was all about because <laughs> apparently not that many people heard about it. Now I'm thinking maybe that's why. Maybe it's because it barely existed in the United Kingdom. Saying that most of us have internet and nobody's ever stopped you looking for film on the internet before. I know. And it's on Amazon Prime as well, if you fancy watching it on that. Okay, we need to address the soundtrack of this film. Because it's a ride. It's literally a roller coaster. So for those who are familiar with Dario Argento's work, you will know the soundtrack is always very important and sometimes completely out of this world. But Phenomena is a little bit different because... It was made in the mid-80s, and at the time, in the cinema world, there was a trend that just started with film using actual songs by artists in their film, opposite to just a score. So for this film, you have a mix of the original score of Phenomena, but also original composition from artists such as Bill Wyman and Claudio Simonetti with the solo soprano voice of Pina Magri. We'll talk about it a bit later in the film as well because it's a very atmospheric and almost fairy tale like kind of music. And this blends well with the score, but he also decided to <laughs> use heavy metal tracks by Iron Maiden and Motorhead. And I don't even know what to think about that. I like those bands. And sometimes I watch the film and I think it works. And sometimes I watch the film and I'm like, what the hell? It's, like I said, the soundtrack is a ride. Just for that, just for this experience. I've never actually seen any other films ever where it's weird like that. I don't know, it's just something really special about it. I'll let you judge by yourself. A bit earlier, I mentioned that on my French DVD, it was the original version of the film in English. So like I said, it was it's an Italian film with an Italian director and an Italian team. But the film was actually shot in English, then dubbed in Italian, which is kind of odd. And I don't really know why. I'm thinking either it's because of Jennifer Connelly and Donald Pleasance, who are the two main actors, or it was to make it easier to release in Europe and America, which in that case, it kind of fail when you see what's happening with Creepers. But so, yeah, I don't know. But it's a fun fact about the film. You can't really talk about any Dario Argento film without talking about the giallo. Um, my Italian accent is non-existent, so I'm extremely sorry if I mispronounce this word. Giallo, I guess it would be. Oh my God, that's terrible. So what is it? It's an Italian film genre, 
with its own codes and Dioargento uses those codes. And we're going to have to acknowledge it in order to really understand phenomena and some choices that are made in this film. So I'm going to try to explain you very, very quickly for people who are not familiar with it, what it is. So I'm going to read from a book that I've got home called The Definitive Guide to the Cinema of Fear. We all need at least one book like that in our shelves. So what they say about it is the giallo is an Italian film genre in which the murder mystery format pioneered by Hitchcock is taking to baroque extremes, which is very, very true, verging on and sometimes overlapping with horror. So it's not always horror, far from it. Sometimes it's only thriller or more like some kind of like police inquiries, that kind of thing. Violent death is fetishized and plotting so convoluted that it borders on the ridiculous. Sometimes, yes. So sometimes you might think like, whoa, this is a bit far-fetched. Or, ooh, they're really kind of overplaying this character. That's also a figure of style of this genre. The word giallo means yellow in Italian. And it comes up because at first it was the color of the mystery thriller book that was published in Italy between the 1930s and the 1960s. It was like some kind of pop literature, like little thriller film, uh, not film, books, sorry, that was coming out. The literary giallo is a wider genre, but the Italian film is generally considered a giallo if it features a series of sadistic murders performed by a mystery killer with various details. So, for example, the killer's got a mask or a black coat and gloves or a decorative and meaningless title or loads of stuff like that. So, again, we're going to see that phenomena does have those codes applied to it. It's not the most giallo film by Dario Argento. It doesn't have all the codes and it doesn't show that many of it. Um, I guess if you want more of it, you would have more films like Suspiria or Tenebrae or again, The Bird with the Plumage, The Crystal Plumage. That maybe a bit more... Um, you know, full of codes from Giallo. But when you watch Phenomena, you can definitely see uh, it is a Giallo. So there you go. That gives you kind of like the basis to maybe understand Phenomena a little bit better. And I'm going to mention it again in this episode sometimes, like the codes and everything. So at least you know what I'm on about. Okay, let's jump into the film. So when the film begins, it takes place in the Swiss Alps and you see those beautiful mountains full of trees and one single road. It looks so isolated. It's just, it's beautiful, but it's in the middle of nowhere. And there's a bus that arrives and people get in the bus and the bus leaves and you see a girl, probably around 14, missing the bus. And honestly, the first time I watched it, and even now, uh, it made me so anxious because she is in the middle of nowhere. 
I instantly put myself in her shoes and I'm like, what do I do? There's no phone, there's no phone box, there's nobody. So I find it personally really scary. And you have this weird soundtrack. There's a few different parts of the soundtracks that keeps coming back, like theme, that goes with certain theme. You have this soundtrack that always made me feel a little bit uncomfortable playing over this woman or girl who just missed a bus and wondering what she's doing. She sees a track, so she takes that track that goes towards her house. And you have all the opening credits with the, you know, the directed by Dario Argento and the name of the actors or anything. But let me play for you a little bit of that soundtrack that is really weird and that I find very uncomfortable. Maybe it's just me, I don't know, but for some reason, this part of the soundtrack always made me feel uneasy. But anyway, <laughs> back to the story. So she finds a track that leads to a very, very traditional looking Swiss chalet. And obviously she needs help. She doesn't have many options and it's the only chalet miles around, I would say. So she goes in, as you do, and you see chains attached to the wall it's not like it's not in the same scene as her it's just a cut scene where you see chains attached to a wall being rattled and the first thing you think is oh it's a beast it's like a very strong dog or an animal of some kind that's the impression it gives you so she carries on going into the chalet obviously she didn't hear the chains rattle on the wall and <laughs> Just to make it easy for any killer that would be around, she announces her status loud and clear. She's supposed to be a Danish tourist, you learn a bit later on in the film. So the scene cuts back to the chains you see rattling against the wall and they're actually being torn off the wall. So you know whatever was attached in this empty house is now free. You don't see whatever was attached, but she gets attacked from behind with the chains and she's getting kind of strangled by the chains. So by that point, you gather that it must not be an animal because if it was an animal or a beast or anything, it would attack her. It would not use the chain to try to strangle her. So the use of the chain, it's silver chains and you always see that little shine on anything silver. It's a huge... Dario Argento trademark and it's a huge giallo trademark as well. Things like blades and everything, they're always going to have that really, really bright shine on it. And that's the first time you see it is with the silver chains attacking the tourist. Uh, while she struggles with the chains, you see the second <laughs> bit of really big shine on blades, which is big scissors that falls in the struggle and plant themselves on the floor. Again, you see that massive shine that is completely unnatural. Nothing shines that bright ever, except in Dario Argento films. So the reflection, completely trademark. It's definitely there 
for a reason. She managed to escape and she runs away in the forest, but she's being followed by the killer. So she runs, she runs in the woods and she arrives by a waterfall and she managed to get into a little, I don't know how to really explain it, like a little rock formation, like some kind of grotto that gives on the waterfall and you can see the waterfall through a glass panel. So she gets cornered in that and she gets stabbed with the scissors. Again, you don't see the killer. She gets stabbed in the stomach with the scissors. Again, you have like the shine on the scissors and the blood is bright red, which is another trademark of Argento and the giallo. It kind of goes hand in hand, really. So the blood completely looks like nail polish. And that's fine because that's how it is. That's one of the codes. So obviously she's getting killed and her head goes back in slow-mo and breaks through the panel the glass panel she's leaning against. So this, again, <laughs> I'm going to stop, I promise, is a signature Argenta move. He has something about bodies going through glass panel. You can see it in Suspiria uh, a couple of times where bodies are going through big glass panel once it's um, glass, like stained glass on the ceiling and another time one of the, the roommates of Susie Banner gets a head pushed through the glass window. Other film as well has been, you know, you see body impaled in glass and everything. So it really is a trademark Dario Argento here. It's also important to note that the Danish tourist is played by Fiore Argento. Again, no idea how you pronounce it, and I really apologize because I know I'm not pronouncing it right. So Fiore Argento is Dario Argento's daughter. Dario Argento is quite notorious for loving, torturing, and killing his family member on screen. A lot of them have been really vocal about it, especially his other daughter, Asia Argento who opened up quite a lot about the fact that it was really hard being a child actor and that her dad was really pushing her and it was really hard. And yeah, it's a bit weird that that want, that will to kill your own children or wives or whatever on screen like that. There is a theory about his obsession with murder by glass shards and everything about his ex-wife, who was a master glassmaker. I'm really not sure if he has anything to do with it, but even if he doesn't, it's kind of a fun fact. It's kind of a weird coincidence. I have no way to verify this information. I don't know, I'm not in his brain. All I can tell you is death by glass shards or going through glass panel or glass window or getting impaled and killing family members is definitely one of his things. So there we go. Back to the film. So our poor Danish tourist has just been stabbed. Her head has gone through the glass panel backwards. And the camera changed angle. And you can see the waterfall. And you just see from a bit of a distance her head falling in the waterfall. There's not really blood or anything. You can, and you can't see the fact that she's been beheaded on screen. You just see her head fall. So that's the first murder. And... It's, it's something, to be honest. There is a lot of wind in the tree all the time, and you can hear it. 
So that's another scene. It's very atmospheric and it starts with the wind in the trees. It's at night and you see a chimp in the forest. It's Inga. We'll, we'll learn later that her name is Inga. She goes back to her house and that's when we're getting introduced to one of our main characters, the Dr. McGregor, who is played by Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance is Dr. Loomis in the first Halloween. And I really, really love this actor. He's, I don't know, it just makes me feel at ease. And he just looks so nice. And in this film, he, so he plays Dr. McGregor. And he has a fake Scottish accent. That is something. I, I really like his accent. He's also paraplegic, so he is in a wheelchair. So during this introduction, we see a meeting between cops who are here to ask for his help. Because in this film, he's a forensic entomologist who is somebody who studies insects. So we are maybe now a bit more familiar with series like CSI or Criminal Minds, everything that insects can be, the study of insects can be really handy in uh, police inquiries to, for example, to know the time of death or to try to locate a body, everything like that. But he'll explain that a little bit later. So we have Inga, the chimp, bringing, we follow Inga, she brings some kind of craft knife or something like that, a blade, uh, and she gives him to Dr. McGregor, who scolds her straight away and explains to her as if she was a child that it's very dangerous and she can hurt herself. And he shows her that he cuts by cutting a paper. You're not again. Hey. Where did you get this? You know you could cut yourself. Look. Here. You could cut yourself with this. See? It's not a toy. This little scene that seems fairly irrelevant right now will actually be very relevant towards the end of the movie, so keep that in mind. Meanwhile, he explains the, to the cops, but really he explains to us, the audience, what a job does and how he can help locating bodies and everything like that. So he explains the cycle of the insects. The insects that eat cadavers are divided into eight groups. Eight groups of insects that follow one another, installing themselves at exact moments and on precise terms. Never sooner and never later. And then the cops just explains it a bit clearer for you. Eight months. Now I see. By calculating the presence and the growth of the flies or the maggots, you can pinpoint the exact date of death. Or murder. At that moment, the cops revealed a very, very rotted head they brought to the doctor. So now you know why they brought it to the doctor. They literally just explained that to you. And there is loads and loads of maggots in this head. Um, the maggots also, it's, it happens a lot in Dario Argento's film. Like in Suspiria, you have a whole scene with maggots. I talk about Suspiria a lot because I love Suspiria. It's one of my favorite films and it's definitely going to be covered at some point in this podcast but anyway so they're talking about that they just kind of learn it's probably Vera Brent the Danish tourist because of the maggots in it and the date because they just learn it's been eight months and the doctor says just like the other girls so you know there has been other girls missing 
and is probably a serial killer at that point. He also mentioned a girl called Greta. And at that moment, he doesn't tell you what relation he has to Greta, but you can see on his face that there's quite a lot of pain. So you probably, you know that it's probably somebody quite close to him. And that's how you introduce to Dr. McGregor. After this scene, we get introduced to the other main character of the film, who is Jennifer Corvino, played by Jennifer Connelly. It was one year before she appeared in Labyrinth. So that gives you a bit of an idea what she looked like at the time, if you haven't seen any pictures or any bit, anything from the film. She's getting picked up from the airport to go on her way to an all-girls school. Again, that reminded me of Suspiria a little bit. And she gets, pick, she gets picked up by Frau Bruckner, somebody sent from the school, who is played by Daya Nicolodi. Daya Nicolodi is... Dario Argento's wife. They stayed together, I think, about 10 years. And they divorced that year in 85, just after Phenomena has been released. So I don't know what I'm saying about that. But they met while they were filming Deep Red in 74. So she stars in Inferno, Tenebrae, Phenomena and Opera. So quite, quite important in Dario Argento's work. Also, apparently, Suspiria is based on a childhood, which makes me wonder. I'm, I haven't dug on Diane Nicolodi, but I definitely will after this episode, because I'm just thinking, if Suspiria is based on a childhood, I want to know more. I want to know more. And clearly, again, we're in a setup, just like in Suspiria, where we know all girls schooled in the middle of the forest and everything. So I see similarities there and I definitely want to know more. Anyway, they are in a taxi going on the way to the school and we learn that Jennifer Corvino's dad is a famous actor who is shooting at the time in the Philippines for a year or so and he can't be reached even by phone or by letter. He can't be reached at all. Uh, Jennifer Corvino seems really at ease in the car and there's a bee that lands on her hand and she seems quite happy about that until Frau Bruckner notices the bee and completely freak out like a lot of people do when they see a bee because this, they think they're going to be stung. The driver also starts to panic and he almost caused an accident and Jennifer is trying to say don't kill the bee and try to calm them down and eventually they do calm down. And she explains that she loves insects and they won't hurt her. It's a bee! I know! It won't hurt me. Insects never hurt me. I love them. You, you love them? Yes. I love all insects. They arrive at the school and this one of my favourite parts of the film because it looks like a real fairy tale to me. The school itself is very beautiful you still have that wind, completely surreal wind. The wind in the old film is a whole character. So the wind is blowing and you have a narrator voice for the only time of, of the movie describing the start of the story. Combined with that, you also have a part of the soundtrack that sounds very fairy tale like to me. So it's the track that I talked about in the intro with the tenor voice going on. 
and so Jennifer arrives in Switzerland from the New World to pass her first memorable night at the Richard Wagner International School for Girls. At that moment, Frau Bruckner introduces her to the school and also tells her that a lot of the buildings are, which are part of the school, she's not to wander in because they're not safe. They're a little bit derelict. That reminded me of Bluebird a little bit because we, or Beauty and the Beast, for example, because we all know that if a building is forbidden, the main character is definitely going to go in at some point. But she is warned. So Jennifer arrives in her room, which is quite big, really. She has one roommate and she unpacks. And you see that Jennifer is kind of cool. Her roommate is called Sophie. She's French, so obviously she smokes. She totally chain smokes. <laughs> I guess that's a French thing. And, you know, they start bonding because Jennifer says she's starving. She hasn't been eating for ages. And Sophie has baby food left over from when her family came to visit with her little brother, baby brother. And because we know that Jennifer Corvino's dad is a famous actor, I guess it's a way to show that she's really not snobby and she's very approachable. And she goes for the baby food. She eats it with a bit of a toothbrush. So they started bonding like that. The headmistress arrived to, well, you would think welcome her, but actually she's straight away, she's really not nice to Jennifer. She arrives and she scolds her for being late. She was expecting in the afternoon and it's now the evening. Jennifer tells her that unfortunately a plane was delayed because of the weather, because of the wind. And she offers her some baby food, which is wildly inappropriate to the headmistress. So straight away you can see there's going to be a conflict and there's a position of power and Jennifer is not going to take it. She's not aggressive, mind, but she's just not going to take it. She's not going to take the crap. So already you have the battle of authority here. As what we can only assume for punishment of her attitude, the headmistress confiscates Jennifer's poster, which is a poster of Paul Corvino, who is actually her dad. So Sophie, who still smokes, she's, I think she smokes in every scene. And she's really young. They're supposed to be 14 or something like that. But French people smoke at 14, right? So she's annoyed and she tells Jennifer that she loves Paul Corvino and she adores him and everything. And Jennifer explains that it's actually her father. So Sophie is obviously very excited because she knows all about Paul Corvino and apparently Jennifer's life as well, which is a little bit creepy. Your mother lives in India and owns a hotel. She remarried. Your father never did. You were only seven when they split up. No, I was eight. Eight. You were seven. As a way of bonding with Sophie, Jennifer opens up a little bit about the really sad episode of her life when her mom left them. Apparently it was on Christmas Day and she got a call from a lover and just left. Apparently this is based on Dario Argento's own childhood, which is kind of sad. Sophie also tells Jennifer about the murders that have been happening and the fact that she is a bit scared and she's really happy to have a roommate now. Then it cuts to another scene when later in the night we assume Jennifer is sleeping, but we can tell she's having a nightmare. She's moving around and thrashing in her sleep. And in parallel, we see 
a young girl running through the trees at night screaming and it's very surreal it's you you know it's happening but it's just that big forest and you have statues white statues as well so you know it's near buildings and it's really pretty and the soundtrack is iron maiden <laughs> suddenly we're playing iron maiden because why not and honestly i really don't know what to think about that it's just it's really awesome and it works to some degree yet again Every time I watch it, I'm kind of taken aback and I'm really surprised about it, especially because they don't cut the song. The song carry on playing during this old scene. And sometimes it works and other moments in the scene, not that much. So the woman, girl, runs around, go to the building that is derelict. And we see the scenes through the killer's eyes. So it's point of view killer. There is a close-up on a very weird weapon, which is a sort of, I don't know, it's something, it's like a rod that clicks together, it's silver, so again, you have that very bright, shiny effect on the silvery weapon. And it's like, yeah, it's like a rod that clicks together to create a long rod with a big blade at the end. It's, yeah, it's very bizarre. You don't see the killer, but you see the weapon being put back together. Jennifer is still having a nightmare and we have a heartbeat which is going to come back in the film, in the soundtrack, every time she's sleepwalking. And then she starts sleepwalking. So we kind of see what she sees in her head and she sees like very, very bright white hallway. And she sees like sort of the scene of what's happening but through bright vision. It's, it's kind of weird. She sleepwalks on the ledge um, of the building towards the roof, which is very dangerous, like a lot of things with sleepwalking, I guess. And she ends up stopping right in front of a window and witness the murder. The girl who was running literally gets stabbed and crashes through the window Jennifer has stopped in front of. So again, you see a head going through the glass panel and the very bright um, red of the blood. Jennifer turns back and like you see she kind of takes it in, but she apparently she doesn't wake up. She's still sleepwalking. So she turns back on the ledge and she, the ledge collapses. I guess that's the main reason she was warned not to go into this building because it's not safe. But she doesn't know that because she's sleepwalking. So that's all right. I'll give her a pass. She should have fallen to her death in this scene. But the coat she's wearing gets caught when she falls in the ledge. So basically she falls on the floor, but she's not hurt or anything. And she sleeps. She still sleepwalks. So she kind of walks around and she ends up wandering into town. I don't know how far away. Like. When they were driving at the start of the film, I felt like the town was really far away from the school. But I guess not, because she still manages to wander there. So she's in the middle of the road and she gets hit by two guys in a car. And she still doesn't wake up. She still sleepwalks. So they're trying to help her, I guess. They're taking her, her inside their car, which is a convertible. So he has no roof. And they're trying to like ask her where she's coming from or whatever, but she's just thrashing in her sleep and she's trying to fight them. And eventually she jumps off the car and they're just like, ah, oh, fuck it. And they just go, they're just like, I've had enough. 
So Jennifer rolls on the side of the road and ends up alone in the forest. And at that point, she finally wakes up. <laughs> and she's all alone in the forest. And again, you have this very fairy tale vibe. The soundtrack changes to the soundtrack with the voice work called myself the fairy tale theme of the film. So the tenor voice singing those surreal notes. And she's just there. She sees the full moon. She sees insects everywhere. She looks kind of peaceful, to be honest. And she just observes insects. And Inga, the chimp, finds her. So she takes her by the hand and she leads Jennifer through the forest to the Dr. McGregor house. And you see... You see her through a ladybug's eyes, which is really cool. I really like this effect. Dr. McGregor examines her, makes sure she's all right, even though he's a little bit harsh about the way she looks. You look a mess, child. This always makes me laugh. I'm like, harsh, dude? But anyway, whatever. So she tells him she doesn't remember anything. She's been sleepwalking before in America, but it's been ages ago and it hasn't really happened since. They start chatting and they discover their common love for insects. So they chat a bit about that. And then he tells her a bit more about Greta, who is the girl he mentioned in the first scene when he was talking with the cops. And he tells her that she reminds him a lot of Greta. And he offers Jennifer Greta's coat, which is a little bit foreboding, I find. Also, it's a very cool coat. They bond over insects and it's revealed insects like Jennifer back because apparently they're calling up to her like a mating call. It is. It's meant to attract a mate. You're exciting him and he's doing his best to excite you. Mm, I'm not sure I would feel about that if I'm honest, but Jennifer is kind of okay with it. She just laughs it off and she thinks it's funny. So she's going to go and Dr. McGregor tells her to come back anytime. I think he's just a bit bored and he loves the fact that somebody has the same passion for insects and everything. And he probably misses Greta as well, who was, used to come and visit him all the time. She says she might do and she's not completely sure. I guess he is an old man, <laughs> you know, surrounded by insects. So she's a bit careful, which is good for her, you know, kudos to that. He gives her a tip, though, before she leaves about the sleepwalking. She, he says to her, when you dream, keep telling yourself, I am sleepwalking, I must wake up. She tells him again that she hasn't been sleepwalking in ages and it won't, probably won't happen anyway. And she said it's probably the trip or the change of hair. And they start talking about the wind, which I find really interesting because... The wind is omnipresent during the old film. It's always there and it's like an actual character. And in this scene, you understand why. The wind, yes. The phone. Very particular wind. Typical of this part of the country. It comes from the Alps. The blasts of warm air cause snow avalanches. Make the flowers grow. The hatching of the larvae. Some people get headaches. While it blows, there are those who say it causes madness. It's a strange part of the country. The Swiss Transylvania. 
back at the school the next day, the headmistress wants Jennifer to take an EEG, which is, you know, when they put loads of electrodes on your head and monitor your brain pattern when you sleep because of her sleepwalking. And apparently the mistress is really pissed off and she says it's against school rules to go wandering at night, even though clearly she didn't do it on purpose, but hey-ho. And it's not normal and she's not normal and they really need to know more. And doctors even says that it can lead to schizophrenia, which I think is a bit, you know, it's a bit far-fetched. Like, she only got sleepwalking. A lot of people sleepwalks, but apparently to them it's a really big deal, even though Jennifer thinks it's stupid. Eventually she agrees she doesn't have much choice, so she takes the EEG, and during the EEG she has flashbacks from the murder that she witnessed when she sleepwalked that she didn't remember before. So the EEG goes mad and she rips the electrodes off. The headmistress wants to know if she suffers from epilepsy or if she takes drugs. It's, it's very offensive, really. And Jennifer just screams back, I'm not crazy and everything. She's obviously quite upset, which is very understandable. So Jennifer storms off and she wants to call her dad's agent slash lawyer, Maurice Shapiro. Maurice for short. Unfortunately, he is out of town, so she only gets like his secretary or something. But she tells the secretary to tell Maurice that she needs to get out of the school, that it's not possible, that nothing is right, people are getting murdered outside, is nuts. The other girls in the school starts to bully her a little bit, like call her name when she passes around, thinks she's a snob because she's Paul Corvino's daughter, even though she's done nothing of the sort. Like, she's been really cool, but hey-ho. And they start calling her a freak because she sleepwalks and everything. So Jennifer is not doing great in the school, clearly. During class, she talks to Sophie, a roommate, which is apparently her only friend, and she talks to Sophie about having flashback of the murder and that's literally the only person she talks to about it so she asks Sophie to keep an eye on her at night because she doesn't feel safe and she trusts Sophie but Sophie <laughs> I don't know if it goes with being French and the reputation along with the smoking but she just wants to meet boys so at night even though she promised to look after Jennifer when Jennifer is sleeping she decides to sneak out and she borrows Jennifer's top as well, which is quite a cool top, like very 80s. With, it's quite recognisable, though. It's got like a silver bird on the back. And she decides to borrow the top and meet up, sneak out of the room and meet up with her boyfriend in the school grounds at night. So she leaves Jennifer alone. You can tell at first she's trying to impress her boyfriend a little bit because she's in the same room as the famous Jennifer Colvino. And she says, like, oh, I borrowed a top. And Jennifer wears her hair like mine, which is probably not really the case. But we know there is similarities between her hair and she's wearing a top. And she tries to show off, but her boyfriend is a bit too interested into knowing about Jennifer and not Sophie. So Sophie gets a bit jealous and starts throwing Jennifer under the bus, saying like, oh yeah, but she's, a kind of, she's kind of a freak, she sleepwalks anyway. The boyfriend needs to go, and Sophie's pretty pissed off about that. Sophie's really not a great person, to be honest. 
the wind is still there, still really present in the film, very, very strong. So the boyfriend leaves and they kind of argue and you see a close-up to the weapon clicking again, that weird weapon. And Jennifer starts to have a nightmare with the heartbeat soundtrack again. She starts sleepwalking again and you still have that sleepwalk soundtrack playing in the back and she starts seeing that bright hallway in her mind again. But because she knows about Dr. McGregor's trick, she manages to wake up. She tells herself that she's only sleepwalking and she needs to wake up and it works. In parallel, we see that Sophie is getting murdered. She's getting stabbed. And obviously, Jennifer sees that Sophie's not home, like she's not in the bed. We can only assume that Sophie got stabbed because she got mistaken with Jennifer also because she's wearing a top and the hair is the same, blah, blah, blah. You want it to be Jennifer. Well, now you get it and you got stabbed. So Jennifer... It's weird, there's like a shift. She did wake up from a sleepwalking and she looks very peaceful. And it's like she would have heard a voice coming from outside calling her. So she decides to get out in the night and she's wearing this beautiful, billowing, white night dress, which is floating in the wind. And this is literally my favorite scene of the whole film because she starts she goes into the garden of the school which is pretty much a forest and she starts following a firefly that guides her and then you have the really what called the fairy tale soundtrack that changes into a really badass soundtrack which i absolutely adore let me try to play it for you people could play this soundtrack every time I do something cool every single time it just keeps me going I love it I will download it and I will listen to it every time I do something cool which is so often really just imagine doing the laundry or the dishes with this soundtrack suddenly boom epic the firefly actually leads her to a glove that she finds in a bush And suddenly there is lightning, thunder and rain starting. So she runs back into the school. We see her run back into a school and we hear her scream. But we don't know why. It cuts to the next day and we see Jennifer sat in a cable car. So we know she's going to see the doctor because when she saw him first, he invited her to come back anytime, remember? And he told her it's only a cable car trip away from town or something. So we know she's going to see the doctor. Off screen, we hear Jennifer's voice narrating a letter she's writing to her dad, or she wrote to her dad, I guess, telling him everything, like telling him what's happening with the murders, telling him that the headmistress hates her and told the police not to believe a word that came out of her mouth, and that also she can communicate with insects she sings. We also get a flashback to why she screamed. So we see her the night before 
coming back with the glove inside the bedroom. And when she, I think she puts the glove on actually, or she just examines it, but there's loads of, la of larvae in it. So she screams because she sees the murder through the maggot eyes. It's, I know it sounds really weird, but trust me, it's weirder when you watch it. So yes, she, I think she puts the gloves on or she touches one of the maggots and she's got flashback of the murder. So she's taking the glove to the doctor because she believes it's the killer's glove. And she's right. She admits to Dr. McGregor that it's a firefly that led her to the glove. And he believes her, which is a great relief. The doctor tells her about the telepathic power of insects, like the natural way insects have a slight telepathic power and I wrote a book about it and he thinks somehow Jennifer has the same. She's just able to connect with insects in a telepathic way. When she comes back to school, she actually walks in onto a conversation she's hiding, but she hears the headmistress talking to two students and asking them to keep an eye on Jennifer at all time and spy on her and everything. The students don't want to really because they're scared of Jennifer. They think she's a freak and Sophie disappeared as well and they still haven't found her and everything. They also tell the headmistress that they found a letter, which is actually the letter that Jennifer wrote to her dad that we heard her narrate in the cable car. And they tell the headmistress that in the letter... She tells her dad about the doctor and her ability to communicate with insects, which obviously proves to them that she is completely crazy. Jennifer interrupts them and snatches the letter, because it's hers, and she walks out. But all the students start following her and tease her in a really cheesy way, like, eh, Jennifer, eh, and just tell her, like, oh, you're talking to insects and everything, just basic bully basically and they all surround her in a scene that almost reminds me of Brian De Palma's Carrie the problem scene when you can all hear them you can all hear them laugh and the mom's voice say they're all gonna laugh at you they're all gonna laugh at you and it's a bit like that like Jennifer puts her hand on her ears and the all the students start turning around her screaming we worship you She manages to escape them and stops and suddenly she becomes really peaceful and the wind, which is always there, blows inside the school this time. So <laughs> you've got that great effect where her hair is flowing in the wind, even though she is indoors. But I think it's totally meant to be. She just looks at them and says, I love you. I love all of you. I love you all. And outside the school, you see tons and tons of flies gathering and they start gathering on school windows everywhere. It's kind of scary for the students, I guess. And Jennifer collapses in a very dramatic way, which again is not because it's bad acting, it's just because it's the style of the film. When she wakes up, she's back in her bed and she hears the headmistress called an ambulance to take her to a psychiatric hospital. <laughs> Because, you know, that's not over the top at all. Is she insane? Well, she's not normal. She's diabolic. Diabolic? Yes. 
the Bible also refers to the devil as Baal-zebub, which means Lord of the Flies. Look at her, the Lady of the Flies. Isn't she great? Honestly, best headmistress ever. When I re-watched the film, which I haven't watched in a while, I thought maybe she had something to do with the murders and that's clearly why she was trying to get rid of Jennifer. Turns out, no, she's just an asshole. <laughs> I mean, imagine. She's, she's just the worst character. She's just really nasty. Anyway, so the nurse is supposed to call the headmistress as soon as Jennifer uh, wakes up. So she instantly falls asleep <laughs> instead of keeping an eye on her. She just like sits down by Jennifer's bed and falls asleep pretty much immediately. Jennifer managed to sneak out in Greta's coat, which I think is not a coincidence. And she escapes to see the doctor, which is pretty much the only person she can go and see because he's the only person who believes her. The doctor shows her the larvae found in the glove which he had time to study by then. And he says it's the larvae from the great sarcophagus who feeds from corpses. The great sarcophagus? What a weird name. The destroyer. The flesh eater. It is capable of picking up the scent of a dead body over vast distances. It's sensory perception. Is extraordinary. She asks him why so many larvae was found in the gloves, and he tells her that it probably indicates that the killer keeps his victims, you, like a lot of them. And then the doctor tells Jennifer, the world needs the two greatest detectives, which I think is really cute. And he means her and the great sarcophagus, which is a fly, obviously, when he stops being a larvae. The fly is like a magic wand, he says, and he will lead her. So the plan is to take the bus because all the missing girls um, disappeared on the same bus route. So to take the bus with the fly and basically wait until the flies go crazy and shows her the killer's house, which is a very, very dangerous plan, if you ask my opinion. But they're like, yeah, let's let's do it. Let's go for it. I'm surprised you even suggest it. But yeah, anyway, they want to do it and they're going to do it. So she does get on the bus with the fly in a little mesh square box and she opens the window and she just waits, basically. When the fly goes nuts, it's in the middle of nowhere, like in the opening scene, actually. So she lets the fly, she gets off the bus and she lets the fly out of her box and starts following it to the Swiss chalet that we saw at the very start. We also see there's a car waiting there, but we don't know where it is. So I guess it's a bit of suspense there. She goes inside the chalet, like she doesn't turn around and go to the doctor and say like, yep, I found the house. This is the one. There's only one. There's literally only one, so let's call for backup. No, no. She goes in, following the fly. She starts to explore the chalet, which is empty. There, She finds old toys, which is really creepy. But yeah, that's pretty much all there is. Like just old toys and maybe an old chair or something like that. 
she goes inside a cupboard. She's still following the fly. And there's old paper on top of a shelf. So she goes on, on a stool and tries to grab them. But she falls. And because the floor is rotten, it does like a hole in the floor. Uh, suddenly, there's a man grabbing her from behind. And turns out it's not the killer. Mahaha. <laughs> It's just uh, the, well, I thought it was the janitor, but actually it's the real estate agent. But he grabs her and tells her she's trespassing and the house is for sale. And the owner moved moved away like about eight months ago. And she freaks out a little bit because she thinks she's in trouble, which she probably is, to be honest, because he's not very nice to her. So she manages to escape and run. Meanwhile, we still follow the fly who stays inside the house and the fly goes inside the hole that she made by falling and we see there's a very rotten hand there so in case we weren't sure if it was the same chalet yeah there is definitely body parts in here enters a cop who probably was in that car waiting actually he finds the estate agent and start to interrogate him about the previous owner and everything. So I don't know if the cops were following Jennifer. Maybe they were. It's not very clear if they're just following Jennifer so they go inside the house and get some interest in the house or if they just, you know, through inquiries, through investigation, they found out about this house. I think they've been following Jennifer, really. It cuts to a different scene, and this is my least favorite scene of the film because I find it deeply upsetting and sad when we see it's at nighttime and we see Inga, the chimp, outside because she always gets outside of the house and brings stuff back in. And she sees a kite stuck in a tree outside, so she decides to try to get the kite and the door slams and she gets locked out of the house. She tries to go back in and she gets really panicky and she starts, like, tearing apart the shutters and everything and we know there is somebody inside the house uh, I can't remember why we know that but we know like we see a shadow or something like that and the doctor hears Inga so he's got because he's paraplegic and he's on a wheelchair he's got a sort of chair lift for his stairs so he gets onto his chair lift and starts talking to the chimp and say like oh you silly girl you got locked out blah 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 and we see a blade shine, which is the trademark weapon. <laughs> and unfortunately, even though he knows there's somebody there, the killer um, gets the chairlift to come down and just stabs the doctor, which is really sad because I really liked him. The doctor is such a cool character. And then the killer runs away and Inga finally managed to get in and cuddles the doctor and cry. And I find it so sad. Then we have, we see from the killer point of view, he's, he's in a car and he's about to go and Inga jumps on the killer's car and suddenly Motorhead is playing because, you know, once in a while you need to put a heavy metal song in this film. And Motorhead carries on playing as we go back to the doctor house to a scene where his body is taken away by cops and you have a large crowd gathered there so this whole moment to me really doesn't work. It's I love it, but it really doesn't work when it comes to soundtrack, I find. Maybe some people are different. I don't know. I just every time I'm just like, what the hell? What what the hell? Jennifer, who was supposedly coming to see the doctor, sees the body taken away. 
so she runs away from the crowd. Meanwhile, the cop is carrying on with his investigation and is now in a mental institution where he's meeting up with one of, of the elderly who assured him that nobody can get out. But he's like, yeah, I'm not here for people getting out. I'm more for somebody getting in or who was here. It's not very clear at that point. All it's clear is the guy from the mental institution tells him that the more you go down in the institution, the worse the criminals are, and it's like the circles of hell. And clearly not a cool place. All we know is basically that the cop is looking for somebody in connection with the mental institute. We don't really know why at that, at that point. Jennifer manages to get in touch with Maurice, Maurice Shapiro, the agent slash lawyer that she's been trying to get in touch with. So she finally gets in touch with him. She's outside. She's in a bank when, he, when she calls him. And she asks him for money to come back home to be able to buy a ticket. And she's like, I'm not going back to that school. It's crazy. Morris, I don't want to get murdered. <laughs> Do it, Morris. I don't want to be murdered. Probably one of the most valid excuse or reason to get money transferred. Honestly, fair. There is a tiny little cutscene at that point where we see Inga looking for food in bins, which, again, I find really sad. And she finds a straight razor in the bin. And we know she loves that type of thing because remember at the beginning when I told you, remember that? That's it. She, so she finds the straight razor and she knows what it does also. It goes back to Jennifer, who is desperately waiting for money, sleeping in a bank on the seat. And the woman from the school, Frau Bruckner, the one who picked her up at the beginning and who's been there, but kind of in the background during the old film, um, wake her up and just tells her that Maurice called them. And Jennifer says, I'm, there's no way I'm not going back to the school. And Frau Bruckner tells her, like, no, it's fine. It's sorted. He send us some money and you can fly back to America tomorrow morning. And Jennifer doesn't want to spend the night at the school, very understandably. So Frau Bruckner says, yeah, yeah, no problem. It's all sorted. You're going to stay in my house. It's fine. So reluctantly, but she doesn't have much choice, I guess, Jennifer follows her to a house. When they arrive at Frau Bruckner's house, she explains to Jennifer that she doesn't live on her own because the house is huge. So she's like, no, no, I don't live on my own. I have a young son who's very sick and all the mirrors are covered and that's why. Jennifer tells her that it's no problem if, you know, if a son wants to come in or whatever. And Frau Bruckner is like, no, 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 you won't see him. So Jennifer wanders a little bit and the woman, Frau Bruckner, obviously don't like it. Suddenly she's like, oh, you, you look very flustered. You have a fever. You need to take those pills. Jennifer really doesn't want to, but eventually she doesn't have much choice. So eventually she's like, OK, fine, I'll take them, but I'll get the water myself. And she goes into the bathroom and locks herself in. At that point, I was like, don't take the pill. But she still take a pill. She has a quick look around and she discovers some great sarcophagus larvae on the soap and on the towel, which is absolutely gross. 
And then straight away, she experiences pain from her stomach and understands that she's been poisoned. So she tries to throw up. Actually, she does throw up. So she throws up the pill, thankfully. She's not been poisoned. Um, she comes out because Frau Bruckner is knocking on the door and she comes out like if nothing happened, even though she, the woman, is furious because she's like, what the hell did you lock yourself in for, blah, blah, blah. Clearly not a very stable person. Jennifer tries to make a phone call, but the woman stops her, hits her on at the back of the head and takes the phone away. Jennifer sees the cop by the window and calls for help, but the woman knocks her out and drops metal shutters on all the windows. Uh, I think at that point she locks Jennifer in the room as well, who's unconscious. Frau Bruckner goes out to meet the cop, though. The cop tells her he found out about her working in a mental institution that he'd visited before 15 years ago. And he also tells her that, you know, she got assaulted by one of the criminals there and raped through the bars. And she doesn't deny him. She actually says herself that it happened through the bars and it was a traumatic experience. So she doesn't deny it at all. She says she moved here eight months ago and was living outside Zurich before. And then she invites the cop in and Jennifer hears him scream, which is never a good thing. Jennifer tries to escape from the room she's in and back on Iron Maiden tune. <laughs> Iron Maiden made it back to the soundtrack. So it's a weird room she's in. Well, it's a normal room, but at the top of the door that is locked, there's like a little mini window that you can open. So she managed to climb on the chair and open that little window and she sees in the other room there is a phone. So she tries to get to the phone that is in the next room using a sort of dowel that she clicks together, which instantly reminded me of the killer's weapon. And again, I don't think that's a coincidence. It's too much the same to be a coincidence. The fact that she's got that dowel that she clicks together to try to get to what might save her, it's, yeah, it's a thing, definitely. She still tries to get to the phone and bring it back to her, but it falls, it's a big old phone, you know, and it falls through a hole that is in the floor. There is, all the floors are rotten in Switzerland, apparently, but there's a, there's a big hole in the floor, actually, and the phone falls through it. She probably manages, you can't really see her, I think, but she managed to go from her room to the room where the phone was through the tiny window at the top of the door. Maybe she should have done that first, to be honest, but, you know. So, and she starts to climb into the hole, which is actually a tunnel, to get to the phone. Again, it's a very old phone and there is a long, long lid so, you know, the phone got quite far away in the tunnel. We see Morris arriving in the country at the same time. So we know he's not far. That's kind of a relief. And he tries to call the house, actually. Actually, the phone that she's trying to pick up, he tries to call and nothing happened. Like, she, she's a bit too far away to get to the phone at that point, even though she's almost there. So to Morris... He tried to call Frau Bruckner's house and nobody answered. To Jennifer, she just missed a phone call. <laughs> Suddenly, and she is still in that tunnel, Arms grabs her from another room 
that gives into the tunnel. So it's like a basement room. And turns out it's the cop that she heard screaming before and is chained to the wall exactly with the same kind of chain that we saw at the start of the film, at the very, very start. He's trying to tell her that he's here to help her, even though he's the one who's chained and she's not. So she freaks out a little bit because he's very, he holds her like almost, I don't know, he's completely freaked out. So he just grabs at her. So she tries to get out of his grasp and falls into the grossest pool of dead bodies I've ever seen. Like if you see, if you remember Poltergeist, when she falls into the swimming pool and there's loads of body coming out, it's a bit like that, except worse. It's grim. It's full of maggots and rotting bodies. It's absolutely disgusting. Frau Bruckner enters the room and laughs, gives that type of typical maniac laugh, like ha ha ha, by the pool. And the cop managed to break his thumb to free his hand from one of the manacles and attacks her. In parallel of that, we see Morris drives in the night and we see that he has a gun. So he's obviously aware there's a problem somewhere and he's ready to try to do something about it anyway. Jennifer managed to escape through, like, so she managed to get out of the pool to start with when the cop attacked Frau Bruckner. And she starts running through her hallway, which is what? The very bright hallway she's been seeing in her dream since the beginning. She hears, so there's doors on the side of the hallway, and she hears like a little child um, crying from there. So she stops and opens the door. I would have run personally. I have no heart. I would have left any child behind. And she sees a very small child in the corner of the room facing the wall, and he sounds very scared, and he cries. He's got his back to her, and he tells her that he is scared and he doesn't want to turn around. And she says, it's okay, you don't have to be scared. But when he turns around, he's completely disfigured. So you gather that it's actually Frau Bruckner's son, who is the result of the assault in the mental institution she was telling the cop about. So this kid is not that much of a kid. He's at least, he's 15 years old. He's just a sort of dwarf and he's got a really deformed face. He's, the special effects are not, well, they aged by now. They're very 80s. But it's still like, ew, you know, it's, it's really creepy. Of course, Jennifer's turn round, screams and run away. And she manages to escape in a tiny boat uh, on a lake, which looks exactly like Friday the 13th. You know that lake where Jason is, who is also a disfigured kid? I don't think that's a coincidence either. I think Frau Bruckner's character as a real Pamela Voorhees uh, side to her, who is obviously the mum from uh, Friday the 13th, Jason's mum. So Jennifer tries to escape in the little boat on the lake, and the kid managed to jump in the boat with her with his horrible click dowel weapon that he has during the old film. And he's trying to stab her. Instead, he managed to stab the petrol tank, which doesn't do much at that point, but there you go. She screams, you have the full moon, and suddenly you see loads of flies covering the moon and distracting the child. And eventually the flies attack the child and start eating his face, which is gross. He falls into the lake, so we think that she's probably saved. 
She tries to start the engine, but of course, because the tank, the petrol tank has been stabbed, it starts uh, catching fire and she jumps into the lake to avoid a terrible explosion. That scene when she jumps into the lake, you see her under the water and it's really beautiful and very blue. I will talk about that later. The old film has blue tinge to it. The child grabs her, which is, in my opinion, really unnecessary. That didn't need to happen. It was just like kind of, you know, that trope when you have the last fright of the film. So he grabs her ankle. He is disgusting and all eaten away by all the fly. And she kicks him and she swims out. So really, that didn't need to be there. But I guess that's it. Like, I really think it, it, it doesn't ruin the film at all. I just wish it wasn't there. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking about that. So she swims out and come out of the lake in a white dress. And again, it's really beautiful. And you have the blue moon and the tinge. And, and oh, look, it's Morris. Morris is here. He's arrived after the battle. And oh, <laughs> Morris getting attacked by Frau Bruckner. So she he just arrived to save, well save air quotes because Jennifer saved herself but Morris just arrived and straight away gets decapitated by Frau Bruckner who decapitates him with a sheet of metal again jello metal silver bright she pins Jennifer down on the floor and explains to her that it wasn't her son's fault again really big Friday the 13th vibe in there he was deceased but he was my son. So she reveals she killed the inspector and the doctor to protect his son, who obviously killed all the other girls. Inga, the chimp, arrives before Frau Bruckner and attacks her with the straight razor and starts slashing at her loads and loads until she drops dead. To me, it's a very clear reference to Edgar Allan Poe double murder in Rue Morgue where uh, orangutan is actually the murderer and kills people with a straight razor. So, you know, chimp with a straight razor, orangutan with a straight razor. Yeah, it adds up. Once she killed Frau Ruckner and got revenge for the doctor's death, she drops the straight razor and goes straight to Jennifer. They have a good, nice cuddle. And you have the fairy tale theme that plays again and the credits roll out and it's the end of the movie I really like the ending of the film I think it's actually very touching and it's a lot of action towards the end so it's nice to have the little cuddle at the end it makes me feel better for Inga the poor chimp I don't have a ton of fun facts to tell you that I haven't already said when I was talking about the film I can tell you that the costumes are by Giorgio Armani, which is pretty classy. I can tell you that it's one of Dario Argento's favorite film, according to him. And oh yeah, I wanted to talk about the blue tinge of the film. So if you've watched, for example, Suspiria, you have a lot of bright colors, like you have some green and yellow and reds and blues and everything is very bright. This film is a lot more muted is mainly shades of blue and white. There's a lot of white clothing that the um, characters wear and everything is kind of blue. This is because it's inspired by the film Possession starring Isabella Gianni and Sam Neill. 
if you haven't watched Possession, definitely watch it because it's going to be covered at some point. But yeah, that's where it comes from. Apparently, he was very influenced by it. Also, I think Jenny in Possession, she kind of looks a little bit like Jennifer Connelly. But Jennifer Connelly, probably a bit later in life. Hmm, it's weird. Look it up. Tell me what you think. The reviews weren't that great when he came out and got a lot better in retrospective. But again, it's probably due to the butchered version called Creepers. So that's probably why. A very interesting, cool fact, though, is a really cool 90s video game came out of it. So not officially came out of it, not as in franchise or anything. But the video game Clock Tower that was released on PS1. And you had Clock Tower 2 released on PS1 as well. And on PS2, Clock Tower 3. No, sorry. Clock Tower 2 and Clock Tower 3 were released on PS2. And they were really, really cool games. They're kind of like horror, puzzle, they point and click game. But you find them in a lot of lists about creepy games from the 90s, like Silent Hill and everything. Uh, I played it a little bit. The gameplay is pretty awful. But otherwise, it's a very good game, and it's clearly <laughs> inspired by Phenomena. I mean, the character is called Jennifer, the murderer is called Scissorman, and have massive scissors and kills women. They are in an orphan age instead of a school. I mean, it is Phenomena. It's very official. So, yeah, that's really cool. And when I found that out years ago, I was, yeah, I thought it was really nice. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> fun fact about the chimp. So those who know me personally knows that I'm a huge animal lover, yet I am quite scared of monkeys and apes. Yeah, they make me, un I don't know why, they make me uncomfortable. Maybe because they look too human. I think they just have like little grabby hands and they have a lot of strength. I find them, sometimes they look so aggressive. I don't know. I'm just a bit freaked out by them. So never my favorite animal. And even though I really like Inga in the film and she's adorable and everything, in real life, I probably would, wouldn't go anywhere near her. And it's been confirmed because turns out Inga in real life wasn't uh, <laughs> that nice to Jennifer Connelly at all. During a scene, Dario Argento asked Jennifer Connelly to put a hand on the monkey to prevent her from turning around. The chimp, completely freaked out, attacked her and bit a chunk of Jennifer Connelly's finger off. She had to be rushed to the hospital to have it reattached. Ugh, that sounds horrible and so aggressive. After that, Apparently, it came out that the chimp really disliked Jennifer Connelly during the old film and was looking, was literally waiting for opportunity to attack her again and again. So that big, nice cuddle at the very end is very, very fake. <laughs> Definitely fake. Rating on Rotten Tomatoes is 76%, which I think it's pretty good. I would... I think it's pretty accurate, actually. I would probably give it something like that. It's not the most famous Dario Argento film, and it's probably not the most visual or anything, again, compared to Suspiria or Inferno or Opera. But I think it's not a bad introduction altogether if you want to start by Phenomena. Um, if you already know his work, 
still watch it, you know, basically just watch it. It's pretty. It's got really heartwarming feelings sometimes. Like I said, it's like a bit of a mix between fairy tale vibes and horror vibes. So, you know, what's not to like? Tell me what you thought about it. If you have any questions, please send me messages. You can still find me on Instagram at spookyrama.1 or you can send me an email at spookycams.gmail.com. That's it, folks. I hope you liked this episode and I'll see you back in two weeks for another episode of Spookyrama. Spookyrama.